Would you take your Bibles and turn to Zechariah? We're going to be looking at chapters 12 to 14 in this kind of overview of, of Zechariah's message. And we're talking about the second coming of the king. Last week we looked at the first coming of the Messiah. And today we're going to look at the second coming of the king, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your presence this morning, we've sang these great songs of worship and praise that tell of your love for us and the amazing wonder of being accepted by you, forgiven, cleansed of our sin. We're going to read about that today as we go through this scripture too. And Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning to strengthen us, to encourage us in our relationship with you, to draw us close to yourself. Thank you that you are the God who knows the future and our life is in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today it'll be helpful if you have your Bibles open because I'm not going to be reading all of these passages. I'm going to refer to them as we go along. So if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some under the chairs where you are sitting or you can take your phone and use your app, whatever you have, and follow along with us as we go through this text. Chapters 12 to 14, as I said, focus on the second coming of the Messiah. And James Montgomery Boyce said it would be hard to find a more complete treatment of the events of the end times in all Scripture. I mean, if you love studying the end times of Scripture, this is the place where you want to go because it is very orderly in the way it is presented and it touches on so many different aspects. Charles Feinberg, who was one of the leading authorities on the Old Testament and taught for many years at Talbot Seminary, wrote that the actual events are world-embracing in character, and the ones that are included are this list, and he went through all of these. He said it talks about the world confederacy that's going to come against Jerusalem, the victory of God's people when they are empowered by the Lord the conviction of Israel nationally by the Spirit of God where Israel will come to believe in Jesus, the presentation of Christ as their rejected Messiah. You have the cleansing of the hearts of the nation and then the purging of the land from idolatry and false prophets as all of that is put away. We read about the siege of Jerusalem when the nations come against it and the appearance of the Messiah to rescue his people the establishment of the Messianic kingdom, and the punishment of the nations for their assault on Israel, and finally, the complete restoration of the people of God to a holy nation. Now, all of that is there in these chapters and more, and I mean, it's just amazing how compact it is. And just incidentally, to tell you a little bit about Charles Feinberg, um, Two of his sons were professors of mine when I was at Trinity. John and, and uh, Paul Feinberg taught there at that time in uh, systematic theology and just were great professors. But their dad, Charles, actually was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. And he was studying to become a rabbi. I mean, he was in training to become a rabbi when he came to understand and place his faith in Jesus as a Messiah through chosen people ministry. He was converted, and he chose instead of becoming a rabbi, obviously now, he went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and his life took this whole different direction, and he went on to teach at Talbot Seminary. What a great, great testimony he had and influence for the kingdom. 
Well, Zechariah begins this second oracle, as it is called, this second burden that he has that will encompass three, three chapters. And he starts by calling attention to the God who speaks. He wants us to know that it's not Zechariah saying these things. This is God who is speaking. And listen to what he writes in chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. He said, this is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens and who lays the foundation of the earth and who forms the spirit of man within him. And he declares that I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. And on that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. And all who try to move it will injure themselves. And on that day I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. And then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. This word does not come from some local deity. It's not some tribal deity. It's not from some uh, imaginary God that people have made up. This word comes from the God who made the heavens and the earth. This is the God who gives life and breath to all men. This is the God who made the world in which we live and placed us in it. And he spoke these words so that we might know what is going to happen in the future and that we might have hope and be ready for his coming. Well, how do we know that God is God or that his word can be trusted? Well, has what he spoke in the past come true? Has it happened as he has said? And all we have to do is look at the evidence for these prophecies of his first coming that were written around 480 B.C., about 500 years before Christ was even born, and we can see how clearly they were fulfilled. And even today, we're going to see that again. And so here is this word from God, and we can have confidence in it because the God who spoke is the God who made the heaven and the earth, is the God whose word has come to pass and just as it did in Jesus' first coming, so it will again when he returns. And I want you to notice and think about also how Jesus in his ministry also claimed to have that same kind of absolute authority. When he gave us the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus also claimed that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. So what are we to be doing while we wait? Well, as church shared, we are to go and make disciples. I mean, that's just not the task of those that are called as missionaries to serve in other parts of the world, but that's what we are all to be engaged in, sharing the good news of the gospel, helping others to know Jesus, making disciples, raising up laborers for the harvest. 
In Zechariah 12 to 14, God tells us what he is going to do on that day. And that phrase, on that day or in that day, occurs 16 times in these three chapters. Uh, It is talking about this day of the Lord. And it's not a 24-hour day, but it is a period of time that encompasses all of the events of his second coming. And what he tells us in verse 2 is that in that day, all of the nations of the earth are going to come up against Judah and Jerusalem. All the nations of the earth are going to turn against Israel. And he doesn't mean there that, you know, all 190 plus nations of the earth are going to send their armies there at the same time, but he's saying that the sentiment of the whole world is going to turn against Israel. And you can see that happening even in our world today where people are going, you know, well, what are we going to do with Israel? Or what are we going to do with Jerusalem? Or how are we going to parcel up the land? Or how are we going to bring peace there? And you've got nations that are adamant that want to destroy Israel and drive them into the sea. You have even here uh, this week, you know, this talk of this um, peace uh, agreement that's been made with Iran. And Israel is very worried about that because they know Iran's intent to develop a nuclear missile that they could use against Israel. And you have Hamas, you have ISIS, and others that would like to drive them from the land into the sea. And yet they remain. This nation that is not any bigger than New Jersey, it's small in population, it is surrounded by more than one billion Muslims that would like to see them gone from the Middle East. Wow. And yet, time and time again, God has intervened in miraculous ways to protect this small and unique people. In 1948, 1949, when Israel became a nation, as soon as they declared their independence as a sovereign state, their enemies were surrounding them. President Truman, two hours after they made that declaration, affirmed that right, but five nations were gathering to go to war against them. Lebanon and Syria in the north, Jordan on the east, Egypt on the south, and then the nation of Iraq. And they all were sending their armies on this multi-front battle that was going to take place. And Israel at that time had no army. I mean, they had a a militia. They were trying to put together some ammunition and troops to be able to defend themselves. And the things that happened in that war of independence in 48, 49 are just miraculous. There's no other way to explain it. Where a small band of infantry could hold off an advancing army coming through a valley or where there were times when they had to resort to a ruse like in the days of Gideon where in one battle they uh, got all the vehicles that they could find in an area, jeeps, cars, trucks, everything they could, and they had them go by cover of darkness up to this kind of high rise where they could could pull up side by side, and they took all the mufflers off of the vehicles, and they, you know, wanted to make it sound as impressive they could, and at the right time they sent those vehicles forward, and the enemies of them thought, I mean, wow, Israel must have got some tanks or something. I mean, they heard all this, and they, they were routed. And you look at these things, and you wonder, how did that happen? David Ben-Gurion, who was their military leader at that time, said that to be a realist in Israel is to believe in miracles. 
to believe in miracles, that there is a God who still works on behalf of his people. And what did God say he would do? He said, I will make Jerusalem a cup of reeling, a cup that makes the nation stagger. What does that mean? It means that the nations are going to come against Jerusalem and they're going to want to drink her down. They're going to want to destroy her. And yet God says, I'm going to turn that against them. And that cup that they drink will be a cup that makes men drunk and they will stagger like a drunken man. He says, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock. They're going to try to come to overrun and destroy her. And I will make Jerusalem a rock that trips them up. And I will strike them with confusion and madness and blindness. God is going to intervene to protect Israel in two ways. One will be a physical deliverance that is described in verses 4 to 9. But there will also be a spiritual deliverance that is found in verses 10 to 14. And he talks about this this battle that will take place when the nations come against Israel. The losses will be terrible. I mean, in chapter 13, he tells us two-thirds of the people in Israel will die in this horrible conflict. Two-thirds of the people are going to die But the one-third that remains will turn to the Lord in faith because of his miraculous deliverance. In verse 10, it says that God will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication upon them. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, And they will grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Let me explain that, what is going on there. God is going to work on this day in which he intervenes where the people's eyes will be opened and they will turn and see and recognize Jesus as the Messiah when he comes. And God says, they will look upon me. This is God speaking. They will look upon me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Now this verse has puzzled and troubled Jewish commentators for a long time because it is God speaking, saying they're going to look upon me, upon God, the one that they have pierced. And they they go, how can that be? I mean, God can't be pierced. I mean, how... How, how can this even happen? How is this possible? And the answer is the incarnation of Jesus. That Jesus is the one who is God in human flesh, who came, who was born among us, who lived among us and took upon himself our sins and was crucified in our place. But even there at that crucifixion, what happened was so unusual. The gospel writers pick up on this verse that Jesus, that suffering Messiah, would be pierced. That is the exact opposite of what would happen to one who was crucified. And John talks about that in his gospel. Look at what he says. John said that the soldiers who were crucifying these men therefore came and they broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. The reason they broke their legs was to hasten their death. 
that then they would not be able to push themselves up to breathe any longer when they were there crucified. And so if you wanted to hasten their death in this cruel form of execution, they would break their legs. But he says when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the man who saw it has given testimony. That man's John. And he's saying, I saw it and my testimony is true. And he knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. I know, for those of you that understand crucifixion, he's saying, I know you're going to think this is strange what happened that day, but this is what happened. And the scripture also prophesied that not a bone of his would be broken but he would be pierced for our transgressions. It's amazing. And they would weep for him. They will weep for him on that day like Israel wept at Hadad Ramon on the day when their beloved King Josiah was killed in battle with Pharaoh Necho. And that was a battle that took place at Megiddo. And the people loved their King Josiah who was a good king and when he was killed in battle... They mourned and they wept for them, each in their own homes, each in their own clans, which is exactly what is described here. Their contrition will be real. It'll be genuine as they grieve what they had done. Zechariah goes on in chapter 13 to talk about a fountain that cleanses. He says, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And on that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. And I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, he's talking about falsely, his father and mother to whom he was born will say to him, you must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. And when he prophesies, his own parents will stab him or put him to death because of what he has done. On that day, a fountain's going to be open. And this fountain is for everyone, for all who believe in Jesus Christ. It will cleanse them from all of their sin and impurity. And God will remove the idols and the false prophets from the land. And the source of this fountain is God himself. How amazing is that? You know, for some of us who are older, we remember a time when, when we had to type our papers and letters and forms on a typewriter. Remember those? You know, it's going back a little bit now. But, you know, the one thing that I always struggled with on a typewriter was the mistakes that you made. You know, how do you correct those mistakes? And then in, you know, the mid-1960s, they invented whiteout, this liquid you could use where you could turn the paper, pull it up a little bit, take the whiteout, white out your mistake, you know, you'd blow on it to make sure it was dry, and then turn it back down, and you could type again. And then, you know, another few years later, they came up with these cartridges you could pop in and out. You had a black cartridge when you were typing, and you made a mistake. You'd pop in the white cartridge, type over it, and you were good to go again. And those of you that have grown up now with, you know, computers with delete or erase or autocorrect or spell check or all those kind of things, you just don't even know what that was like and how much time it took. But John Orberg was talking about that, and he said, wouldn't it be wonderful 
if there was something that could correct the mistakes in our life, if there was something that could cover our transgressions and our sins. And that's what Zechariah is writing about here, that it is this fountain, it is the blood of Christ that washes away all our sins. That's why I love that song we sang and the offering there about being able to boldly come before his throne. Righteous now, I run to the arms of Jesus because of what he has done for us. And the source of that fountain, it's God himself, and God talks about that in an amazing passage here. Look at verses 7 to 9 in chapter 13. Zechariah writes about a shepherd who is struck and the sheep are scattered. Remember how Zechariah earlier had talked about, you know, the, the uh, foolish shepherds or the wicked shepherds versus the good shepherd and how you have these foolish shepherds who did not care for the flock and they were worthless. They were in it only for themselves, but you had the good shepherd who loved his sheep. Well, here it is so puzzling because it is that good shepherd who dies. It's the good shepherd who does God's will that is slain. And we see in verse 7, God says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. In other words, here this death is going to fall against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord, Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. What is going on here? And who is this good shepherd that is slain? It's pretty awesome what he says. God calls him my shepherd, my servant, my chosen one. He says, it is the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. And the words that are translated as the man who is close to me literally means my fellow in the sense of my close relation my blood associate, this one who is the good shepherd who will die is related to me. The great biblical scholar C.F. Kyle wrote about this, that God would not apply this epithet to any godly or ungodly man who he might have pointed as a shepherd. No, he would only call this one who is his neighbor someone who is not a mere man, but can only be one who participates in the divine nature or is essentially divine. A good shepherd who is divine. A good shepherd who is closely related to the Father. That's what he's saying here. And again, this passage, I mean, the, the Jewish rabbis who look at this, they struggle with that. I mean, how? How? How, how are these passages to be fulfilled? What is it that God is saying here? Who is this good shepherd? The writers of the gospel pick up on that. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, they talk about this. And they quote that reference, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's exactly what happened on the night when Jesus was arrested and the disciples, what did they do? They fled. They were afraid for their own lives. They met in secret. Even after Jesus was crucified, they were still meeting in secret, not understanding what had happened, afraid for their own lives when Jesus came to them. But in an even more 
tragic and sobering way. Strike the, sh- strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered is what happened to the nation of Israel. In AD 70, when the Roman general Titus came through and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, burned the temple, destroyed Masada, the last holdout of the Jews, and the people were scattered through the nations. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It was a sobering assessment of what was going to happen to Israel. But it was this passage that moved the English poet William Cooper to write his great hymn when he thought of this great fountain that would flow from Israel. And he wrote, there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day And there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. What great words. What great understanding of what this passage is speaking about and how it was fulfilled in Jesus. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. And then thirdly, Zechariah in chapter 14 goes on to talk about the Lord who reigns. This one who will come and step into history in his second coming. This one who was crucified on our behalf is the one who will reign forever and ever. And Zechariah takes us back to look at this final battle that's going to take place. In chapter 14, he says, A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you, and I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. I mean, he's describing horrible things here as these nations come against them. There will be severe losses and devastation and destruction. And yet when all hope looks gone, Christ will return. We read about this siege of Jerusalem. And then in verse 3 it says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem, east of the Temple Mount. And he said, He will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. And you will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. And you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. But that day is coming when Jesus is going to return with all of the heavenly hosts with him. And when he touches down and when that mountain splits in two, it will be an avenue of escape for those who are in Jerusalem, but it will also be a way by which the Lord will enter into his city, Jerusalem. These great topographical changes are going to take place. I mean, it's going to be extremely unusual when the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west and Jerusalem, in a sense, becomes a seaport. 
It will be a day like no other, he tells us in verses 6 and 7. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. And we don't know exactly how all of that's going to be filled. Some even wonder if this kind of a, a metaphor, if you will, too, to describe that at the very darkest point in life, Christ comes to us and he is our light. But it seems that this will be fulfilled in some physical manifestation that everyone will see. On that day, verse 8, it says the living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. You know, and Ezekiel talked about a river that's going to flow from the temple of the Lord. John talked about a river that's going to flow from the city of Jerusalem in Revelation. And that along this river would be trees that would grow and their leaves would be for the healing of the nations. This river will flow from the temple of God and it will get deeper and deeper and deeper as it goes. In Ezekiel 47, he even talked about this, which is so unusual. I mean, that water is going to flow to the east into the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth below sea level. And so all this water is going to rush in there and the Dead Sea is going to become fresh water wherever that river enters. And one day there will be fishermen who will stand along the shore by En Gedi. Now I've been to En Gedi and it is a beautiful place. It's a place where the mountains kind of rise on the western shore of the Dead Sea. It's where David went to flee from Saul when he hid among the caves and he dwelt there among the conies, the rock badgers and the deer that are there. And it's this beautiful place that you can walk on with streams and fountains and a river flowing down. And God says, one day my people are going to stand there and they're going to fish in fresh water in the Dead Sea. I mean, that's just unbelievable, all of these things that are described there. And he goes on to say in verse 9 that on that day, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will only be one Lord in his name, the only name. And the whole land from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem will become like the Arabah, but Ju Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place. Jerusalem's going to be exalted as the chief of all the mountains, if you will, the place where the people will go to worship. The Lord will defeat those that have gathered against him as enemies, but those who survive and who recognize Jesus will turn and will come and worship him. And you see, in verse 12, he describes the plague with which the Lord will strike the nations that fought against Jerusalem. He says their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouth. It sounds like a description of a nuclear blast. I mean, when we read of what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the devastation that came as a result of the nuclear bombs dropped, that description fits. It's very, very similar indeed. God will destroy his enemies. But in verse 16, the survivors will come from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem. And they will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And in Jewish history, the Feast of Tabernacles was the ingathering of God's people. 
It was the ingathering of the harvest, and that harvest was a symbol of what God was going to do among his people. And so here is this ingathering of all the nations that will come to worship the Lord. And in that day, his name will be the only name. And on that day, he tells us in verse 20 to the end of the chapter that everything will be holy to the Lord. Even the most common vessels that are used, even the pots that you use to cook in or the pots you might say that you put a plant in or the things that you use in your houses, on that day, everything will be holy to the Lord. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Jesus reigning over all the earth. The removal of sin, the removal of false prophets, a recognition that God is God and the people will come to worship him. You know that before World War II and the creation of the modern state of Israel in 1948, many commentators didn't even think this was possible. You read some of the older commentators and they really didn't know what to do with this text. One of the funniest accounts is that of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was rarely at a loss for words. Two times he wrote a commentary on Zechariah and then he tried to expand on it. The first time when he got to chapter 14, he had nothing. You know, I mean, he, just, he doesn't even have anything. It just kind of ends. And then the second go around at it, he came to chapter 14 and he just said, I give up. I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. I mean, because they, they couldn't see how these things would be fulfilled, and yet we live in a generation when we have seen the return of Israel to the land. We've seen the nations lining up all around Israel, some still for, most against, most feeling like Israel is a problem. What are we going to do with Israel? And the day's going to come when they will all turn against him except for the Lord. You know, there are others, too, who sometimes look at these passages and they want to say that the church has replaced Israel, but they, too, struggle with texts such as these. And they don't want to say that in the future two-thirds of all the church is going to die or that half of all Jerusalem, the church, will be carried away into captivity. They struggle with it because it speaks so clearly and physically about a land and a people. And we believe that what is fulfilled here is what Paul talked about in Romans 9 to 11, that there is a day coming when Israel is going to be grafted in again in God's plan. And that that day when the remnant of Israel recognizes Jesus as the Messiah is what Paul is talking about in Romans 11 when he says, and so all Israel will be saved. That there's that day coming when they will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So what should our response be to these things? We should worship him and praise him, praise the one whose blood has covered our sins and whose fountain still flows for the healing of the nations. Walk with him in confidence and in holiness, keeping our relationship with him strong and growing and walking according to his will, walking according to his word. And then witness for him. Be bold. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. But as you have opportunity, tell others about Jesus and look for those opportunities and pray for those opportunities and be a part of going and making disciples of all nations. 
starting right where we live. Let's pray. Father, this is such a rich and powerful passage. I just stand amazed at both what you have done and what you are going to do in the future. And we praise you for Jesus, our Savior, and we praise you that you opened our eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory and fullness and to understand that he alone is the Savior of the world and you brought us into a relationship with your Son. We pray that you would continue to do that as we serve you and are part of helping others to know Christ here in our community and around the world. Would you strengthen and empower us and help us to walk with you each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.